My name is Patricia Rocha, and the reason why I like true crime is because I've always wanted to know what's inside of people who do these crimes. So within that, in the conversations that I've had with Riggs here, these are my questions uh, that I have for him about true crime. True crime fan Patricia Rocha turns the tables on me and asks the questions. In effect, it is a press conference where fans can ask me about coverage inside the crime scene tape. Hello, I'm investigative reporter Robert Riggs. I recently attended a ceremony for outstanding alumni at Texas A&M University. Afterwards, students peppered me with questions about our true crime cases. It was there that I met Patricia Rosia, a senior architecture student, and her friends. Looking on was Bill Peel, an outstanding alum and executive director of innovation at Texas A&M's May School of Business. Peel suggested that a press conference-style interview by fans should be a regular feature here. As many of you know, I've covered my share of press conferences at the White House, on Capitol Hill, the Pentagon, State Department, FBI, and at crime scenes. But unlike those, I don't plan to dance around any questions. If you want to come on the podcast for my press conference, email me, fan at truecrimereporter.com. Tell me what you want to talk about and why. Now, here's today's True Crime Reporter press conference. In terms of time, how much time do you usually spend in order to research one story to feel like you can fully develop it and then put it in a audio? It's a lot. It's not a, It's not an eight-hour day at all. We're always researching. I'm, we have a number of tracks always going, and this, this is what I did in journalism. You always have, these are the stories that we want to do. Okay. So simultaneously, you know, we've got a certain number of stories we're doing research and I've got a producer that works with me. Then we've got a certain number of stories. Well, we're going to, we're starting to write and develop elements for, and then these are the stories and we're there. They're ready. So now let's actually produce the story. It's quite challenging to try to keep up with it because when I was in, in news, you produced generally, I did lots of special projects later in my career, but at the beginning, you were on the air every day. And I grew up in a, a journalism environment where it was enterprise reporting. You had to find the stories. They wanted something unique. And so uh, you had to walk in every morning with ideas. And if you were slotted at for the six o'clock newscast at five after, you better be there because if you if you're not, there's a black hole. And you know, I, I saw reporters. And it was very when the days it was very competitive. They didn't make that spot, and the next day they were fired because they didn't make the spot. Because it just there's a lot of people behind the scenes of the reporter you see in front of the camera, producers and directors and everything. And everything is timed. And if you throw that out of whack, you're going to have a lot of people mad, (laughs) mad, mad at you. And I was always of the deal is that no matter what, I'm going to be there. If I just have to come on camera and do live over video, not fully produced yet, 
you do it just you it's breaking news you've had to get it out to the audience so that really helps us in the podcast as well and then i also wanted to ask i know a lot of people when they think true crime they think serial killers and murders what parts of true crime have you covered that have not been related maybe to serial killers or murders that have you been interested and would want to cover more in the future well in my career i covered cyber crimes fraud terrorism uh, there's a whole range of, of everything. You know, right now we've got a huge fraud story that's unfolding in the crypto world with that big company that, you know, $8 billion gone, vanished. And it looks to me like it was, it has all the earmarks that it was a Ponzi scheme. And the, the founder was ingratiating himself with uh, movers and shakers by giving huge political contributions and giving uh, out donations to charities and saying we're very, you know, they're to be charitable. And I'm telling you, in my career, I've seen so many flim flam artists that do that. And then the media became an accessory. If it's proven out to be a crime, they became an accessory because they became fawning over this person. Oh, they're so wonderful and all, but not putting a critical eye to it. And, you know, unfortunately, there's a lot of inexperience out there in the, the, the people maybe aren't journalists, really journalists. You know, they haven't been they haven't learned how to research and really analyze information for the truth. But there's a whole range of other things. You know, we've done this big, long series on the serial killer, Kenneth McDuff, just because it's one of those stories that just has so many facets of failures of the criminal justice system uh, all through it. Corruption and bribery, uh, not to mention, you know, the horrible nature of his his crimes. And it's and he is a strange it's stranger on stranger crimes, which they're rare, but they scare us all to death. I think that was a very fascinating story to listen to. I listened to that one recently in your podcast again. It was just crazy how he was able to get released after being on death row. And that's what a lot of people in the podcast also talk about. How um, after killing and like actually taking someone's life, he was able to get released. But within that conversation, I think this is a really good leeway to uh, you work with a lot of people that have been to these crimes and have seen them. And I think you were telling me um, at the banquet that you also have been see like to some of these crime scenes and seen um, the scenes of these horrible crimes. How do you sleep at night? <laughs> How do we sleep at night? Well, I did. I, I, you know, reporters see lots of horrible things. Uh, you know, I did wars. You really see it there. Many kind of kind of build a shell around it and try to uh, compartmentalize and not have an emotional attachment. And so you don't know the victims. Now, when it becomes tough is then if you're really getting into it and you meet the victims, families and everything, and then you see the pain and suffering. Uh, and I saw that in the McDuff case, and I was like, that starts to get to you. When I was an embedded reporter in Iraq in the last most recent war, the invasion of 2003, we really, since we lived with all everybody, we really got to know the women and men in the unit. And then when they were killed with us, we knew them. And so we, t we took it hard. It was way harder than if I just, if it, then, uh, 
uh, an anonymous body inside crime scene tape in a location. It did always strike me. I remember the first time I ever did a crime scene and there was the the body there. It hadn't even been covered yet. It was We got there just right at, behind the police and it really struck you how life was gone. It was just this, you know, you were just looking at this body thinking, you know, it was just a breathing, maybe vibrant human being a few minutes ago and it's suddenly gone. Yeah, that just really hits you about the lifelessness of it. So it's good that you've never actually, I guess, try to disassociate from the, from the, the what you're seeing, right? Yeah, it's um, be hard to dis. You know, you're a human being. It'd be hard to disassociate. I do think it takes a toll on you. I knew that, and my family would tell you this: that Iraq took a toll on me. There does become a point. And I even saw this with the soldiers at Iraq that the human psyche could only take an exposure to so much violence that it needs a break. Myself, I'm a storyteller. I like telling the stories. And we think there is something to be learned about it. There are some true crime podcasts that I find very objectionable because I don't think they have an appreciation for the suffering that's taken place, especially with the surviving victims' families or victims of other crimes that have survived, you know, they're kind of, as my partner often says, giggly, and we don't, that's offensive to us. Yeah. You like to tell the story more in um, the way that the families would like the story to be told, I feel. Well, more, we try to be sensitive to the families, but, you know, we're kind of old school, just the facts. <laughs> as as Friday used to say, dragged in, just the facts, ma'am. And... <laughs> These start. These are you know. You don't need to be embellishing this stuff. It's so bad, but it is. There is a fascination. I'm fascinated too about the human psyche. Uh, I've spent a lot of time in the maximum security prisons. I've sat across a table like this, face to face with mass murderers, serial killers, bank robbers, you, everything you could ever imagine. Serious gang members, and you know, there's always like, what's going on? What you want? You want to say what happened to you? But it's like there is this fascination about what is going on in the go this ghost in the machine. So that leads me to my next question. Whenever you do sit down with these people, how do you start a conversation with them? Like, how can you, I guess, in a way, and I don't mean to sound rude or anything, but how can you even be civil with them? How can you sit in a table and just be like, hey? This is my name, and this is what we're going to talk about. Well, as a reporter, it's my objective to get them to talk, to get them to open up and stuff. So in these cases, I'm not confrontational. I'm not judgmental because I know if I am, it's going to shut down. And, you know, I might ask them about their mother. I mean, there are other, it's complex. They have other things. That in other ways, they're just like us that they like, you know, and you can try to find those things they're interested in and uh, take it in that direction. Oftentimes, when I talk to people who are incarcerated, they haven't had any visits. They haven't seen anybody. And they're actually kind of happy to talk to somebody from what they call the free world.
what was the worst conversation that you've ever had with someone in a in a in a situation like this not just outside someone that has been incarcerated there's a mass killer that i did and he's he's in the podcast too i've i've had him on because i still had all the my tape recordings of him you know had a business degree from southern methodist university smu prestigious place hard place and successful in business i mean if you looked at all that educational pedigree and everything and stuff he'd accomplished you'd be like well this is the last person that would become a mass murderer but he got on his motorcycle and started riding around dallas randomly killing people in traffic at gas stations and all and there was a moment that well he said at the beginning of the interview he said you're, you're not going to understand anything i say and it was hard to get in to talk to him and uh, the way i finally got in to talk to him was that all right you got any opinion on gun control? You know, could a gun control have prevented, you know, what all you did? And uh, this guy would have found a gun no matter where. That got me in. And then we were really able to get into. Um, and I was like, what are you angry? Why? Why? What was going on? And then he started opening it up. And when I asked him about the source of the anger, he says that he was really, really angry that John Kennedy Jr. got all of this acclaim and celebrity and wealth, you know, all because of the Kennedy family name. And he didn't have that. He didn't have that opportunity that he was really mad about that. And obviously, then I gave I gave him this look of like, what? You know, what? The, he could read the look on my face yeah. and he smiles and he says, I told you you weren't going to understand what I was talking about. I told you. And then, uh, you know, I talked to him about the days, you know, he's going out to kill people. And I had taken my son <laughs> with me to to work in a maximum security prison. He'd always been like, you know, dad, what kind of stuff do you do? And I was like, well, you know, I'm going down to a maximum security unit. Why don't you go with me and you'll see. I had become, you know, really kind of callous to it. You were in it so much. You didn't realize the intensity for somebody who's never seen it, yeah. how intense it is, you know. So my son is off to the side. How old was your son at this time? He was a freshman in high school. <laughs> and when he's turned to, you know, why you did what you do. And he said, uh, well, he, and he goes, you know, right now, right as I sit here now. I'm a, he, he turns and looks at my son. He said, I might like to kill him right now. And then he turns the other side and looks at the guard. and said, I might like to kill that guard right now. And then he looks dead in, in my eyes and says, and I'd really like to kill you right now. And blood chilling. You know, he didn't know me, anything. And I haven't really done anything to make him angry. He was like, that's the state. That's the state of mind I get in. And only years later did, did our son, who's a young adult, say, that absolutely scared me to death. I was terrified. I thought, is he, is he going to come out here and kill us right now? And he's looked at me. And uh, he got a sort of a new appreciation for what dad did at work. But, 
Yeah, he laid her up. And then I was like, what was I thinking taking him? What was I thinking taking him in there? So did you continue the interview right after that? Or? Oh, no, we kept going on the interview. I, I did not know that it just scared my son to death. Yeah. He was trembling. But I would say for most people, just going through the gate of a maximum security prison in Texas, it would be a frightening experience. There is a sign at the guard tower where you enter, and it says, no hostage will leave this prison beyond this point. And the camera crews going in with me, and I usually had a regular group. But the, when I would have a new camera crew, they would look at me and they would say, is that sign? Does that, does that mean what I think it means? I said, yeah, it means they're going to shoot us all. They're going to shoot the inmate and you might get shot along with it. So, guys, that's the deal going in here. <laughs> Realize you're not coming out and everybody would be like, hmm, I don't think I want this assignment with you, Robert, next time. And, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. So when you go in a maximum security unit, you're hearing the clanging and ringing of metal on metal of the bars and stuff opening. You're hearing always a low rumble of voices as uh, men or women in a women's prison are moving between cell blocks and the stuff they do. It's a regimented stuff they're doing. And if, you, and if you're in a maximum unit that has a prison within a prison in it, which is called administrative segregation, and that's to keep troublemakers apart from the rest. And by troublemakers, I mean gang members and others that have committed crimes in prison against others. Uh, they're put in solitary confinement on these wings. And some of them are just like angry pit bulls. And when you go in there, it's a whole nother world. It's like, I call it Dante's Inferno. If you've read the book, it's like going to hell. And the first time I saw one of those units where it was still just regular cell bars that had openings that doesn't exist on them now, the guards up and down there had to wear raincoats and rain gear because of urine and feces being thrown on them by some of the inmates. It was horrific. It was, I, I, I just remember I was in shock at first, like, oh my God, I didn't know anything like this existed. Yeah. And so is that why they're not just regular cells anymore and they're completely closed off? Completely closed off. There is a, a metal slot in the door that opens with a wrench, a big wrench. Looks like you'd use it on a farm equipment. And that's the tray slot or food slot. Their food comes in through there on a tray. And they get, they're in there 23 hours a day. They get out for about an hour of recreation, basically in a cage. The guards, it's the only place where the guards carry clubs. Uh, nobody has weapons in the prison, although the inmates make them. And it's a really security conscious process of how they come out. Uh, they have to turn around backwards, stick their wrist, arms and wrists backwards out through that slot and they're handcuffed. Then... They have to step away and back, and only then does that cell door open. It's two guards on each side. And then I'm guessing it's only one inmate. One inmate. Per hour. Yeah, but it's a whole different... And you, you just kind of wonder what in the world has happened to some of the you know these people that, you know... Now that I have a... I had a source uh, that was a 
reputed enforcer for the Aryan Brotherhood and killer in the prison. And uh, believe it or not, he could be perfectly charming. <laughs> he, and he was immense. He was in high IQ. He had been in there. I'd seen him. And he'd been put in there because of the gang stuff. And he talked about how really that solitary existence was, you know, very difficult on you, hard on you. And, you know, most of us, we crave human contact. We take that away. Things begin to happen. And there is criticism and people are discussing about, is there a better way? Is, you know, are we inflicting more harm on some than others? Now, imagine this. Back when I was doing my uh, reporting on the scandals in the prison system and the parole system, you know, I found out that inmates from the this I called it the darkest hole of the prison system were being released on early parole straight out of those units. And they had such rage and violence that they were put one to a person in a van shackled driven to the bus station and given uh, you know later a bus ticket and goodbye and turn loose and you know of course they all of them had kind of one man crime sprees going on around the state it was like the last group of inmates should have ever been set free early yeah those are the ones like that are not supposed to be out ever. <laughs> yeah. They're the ones prisons are built for. Yeah. You were talking about that, the Dallas murder that you were talking about, the one that Matt, the mass murder. When I asked you, like, have you ever feel, uh, been felt like threatened? I'm wondering if in these max security prisons or just walking around, has anything ever happened with the security in the prison that's made you feel threatened? Or maybe have you ever been threatened by another inmate like that? Or people that you've interviewed? No, I was at a prison once where a kind of a little mini riot had broke out of disturbance. An inmate had made homemade arrows. I mean, there you can go in some of the units and in the warden's office, they got a whole display of all of the weapons that had been made out of stuff you'd never imagine. Like they would melt the end of a toothbrush, get it hot with a match, and put a razor blade in it that you would shave with a straight for a straight edge razor and you know it would harden and now they had a, a basically a knife they would slash somebody with i saw them um carve toothbrushes into a very like a needle point they, they would stab people or even guards with but in this case he had uh, made arrows and what he had done he had tightly wrapped newspaper as the body of the arrow tight 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 taken thread out of his shirt to tie it tight and tied uh, on the end of it metal tips and the metal tips he had taken the an electrical outlet cover gotten it off in his cell and Matt, you know, they'll spend hours, days doing this kind of thing and made a, a, a metal arrow tip. And then they had taken the band out of pants, elastic band, as the spring to shoot it with. And, the, and for the final thing, they would dip the tip of the arrow in feces. So if you got hit, it's a 
it's trouble then. And I was in there once when that was all breaking loose. And the guy just was letting them loose and I had one go whizzing by my ear. But it really was, it was just directed at anybody, you know, just random, you know, let's get somebody. Now, I, I'll tell you that, of course, I did investigative reporting and I had some, I've had government officials that I was catching in corruption, threaten, call my home, threatening and stuff. And during the, uh, during the investigation of the corruption in the parole system, because of what I was exposing, suddenly the word was out. You know, guys, you, you thought you were going to get out of prison this way. It's not going to happen now. And at first, that anger uh, was directed, being directed at me. And the feds were receiving information. Some of the gangs wanted to put a hit on me. And they wanted to put U.S. Marshals with me. But then later, what happened was Kenneth McDuff became the serial killer. And I exposed, he, he became the poster boy for it. And they directed all that anger to him. And they all wanted to kill him when he came back to prison. And he had to live in segregation because you would uh, get quite a reputation if you could kill Kenneth McDuff. I mean, that happens in prisons. I'm going to make a name for myself. I got nothing though. You know, I've, I've had inmates look at me that were in for life and, <laughs> and they would say, you know, what are they going to do? Kill me? I'm here for life. Big deal. If you want to put questions to me in our True Crime Reporter press conference, email me at fan at truecrimereporter.com. Tell me what you want to talk about and why. Thanks for listening. True Crime Reporter is written by me, Robert Riggs. It is produced and researched by Siler Burr. You can read more about our team on our website at truecrimereporter.com. And while you're there, please sign up to join our true crime community. It's free. And there's a red box on every page to receive our free email updates with behind-the-scenes information. And you can email your suggestions to fan at truecrimereporter.com. I read all of them. This podcast is a trademarked and copyrighted news organization based in Dallas, Texas. Thanks for listening to our Journey into Darkness.